0: Hello and welcome to episode 64 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are talking about World War One versus World War Two, Which books set during these times, or written during these times indeed, um, do we prefer? And in the second half we're going to be comparing two novellas by a favourite author of both of us I think actually, mm. um, Paul Gallico. Um, and we are going to have a hard decision, I think, to decide on a favourite. I, I think yeah. I said well, Yeah.
1: And they are Coronation and Love of Seven Dolls, in case you were not going to get that far. Did I you not were, say that? I You thought didn't, I know. It. No. It's
0: Because I've written it down and I'm looking at it. And
1: like, no, I said that. It's going to be a good episode, guys. I'm excited.
0: <laughs> Look, I've, it's my first week back at school. My brain is gone. Um, so, Simon, how are you? What are you reading?
1: I'm good, thanks. I have spent this evening making a Bakewell tart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a gluten-free Bakewell tart, no less. Indeed.
0: Um, so is that is that just gluten-free flour?
1: Yes, yes. Um, wow. and, and the French pan is already gluten-free, of course, because it's just almonds. But uh, the pastry has got gluten-free flour. And I don't know if a Bakewell tart is known outside of the UK, if it's something they have in... in yeah, you know, other places that people listen to this? But um basically. No, I
0: think it is, but there's the I mean there's a bakewell tart and there's a bakewell pie, which are well bakewell pudding, which are two very different things.
1: They are indeed, and and neither of them are what Mr. Kipling sells as a Bakewell tart.
0: No. <laughs> I don't the icing certainly is not traditional.
1: Mine will not have icing on it.
0: Yes, so. I do find delicious.
1: Yes, Montero, they are exceedingly good. (laughs)
0: They are exceedingly good cakes, but they do make my teeth hurt. They're that sweet.
1: Well, this one is for my church small group meeting tomorrow, and I always volunteer to bring dessert when there's a a, a bring and share, because it's much more fun.
0: It is, and everyone loves a dessert.
1: It's true. I I always
0: just eat dessert at bring and share things.
1: Fingers crossed nobody is allergic to almonds at this. I know there's at least one celiac. or not celiac, in fact, just gluten-free. But... um.
0: Well, it's very kind of you to cater for dietary needs.
1: Well, I do what I do, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> As a vegetarian, I you know, I have sympathy for people who have dietary needs, although there is a line of argument that mine is more of a whim than a need. <laughs> although, are there, I have noticed recently, so there's more and more vegans around. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that's fine. But it does mean that pubs and restaurants and things, when they make a menu, just put I must make everything vegetarian, also vegan, just so they don't have to worry about three different menus or something. Which I guess it makes sense, but I want cheese.
0: Yeah. See, well, the thing is, though, this has worked out really well for me because as someone who prefers to eat vegetarian food but he doesn't like cheese, going out for dinner can be a minefield.
1: You see. Well, I'm glad that you so, you benefited from it. No, I,
0: you're welcome.
1: I almost asked for a dish in a restaurant the other day and just said, "Could you just add cheese on top?" But then I was too embarrassed and just got pizza instead.
0: Oh, I always ask for all sorts of stuff. This is the legacy for me, one of the greatest legacies of living in New York, where yeah. apparently it's fine to ask for just whatever you want. <laughs> um, and I was like, right, well, I'm, I thought it was impolite to ask for um, amendments to the menu, but apparently not. So now I'm like, I'll have this, but take that away. Nice, yeah. The best thing was the other day when I was in a restaurant with my nephew, actually, and he ordered a pizza. Um, and he didn't like any of the toppings, so he said, Can I have this pizza? But can you take off like literally everything in the list? <laughs> and then the waitress said to him, So you just want a margarita pizza? And he was like, Yes,
1: because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should be cheaper. <laughs> like, well, no, it wasn't, I don't oh, think. that's the problem. Yeah. And as for what I'm reading, I'm reading The Millstone by Margaret Drabble oh. in a sort of backdoor effort to convince you that we should do it on the podcast by just having read it in advance. So this is this is one of the ones that I, was, I texted you about the other day. And I thought I'm just going to read them.
0: I just you know what they just even the name, it just feels so depressing.
1: Well, it's not depressing. It's, it's somber, I guess, at times. But, um, so I, I just reread The L-shaped Ruin by Lynn B. Banks, which I love, 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 love. And this is one that Karen suggested, of course, Karen, um, that we should compare yeah. at some point. Um, and I thought, well, I'll read it. And it's, I think it's also very, very good, but it is bafflingly similar that if we ever do end up discussing them, it's going to be very hard to remember which book is which, because both of <laughs> them are about young women who become pregnant and um. Well, they're slightly different. In one, of them's thrown out of her home by her father in the outside room. The other one, her parents are conveniently away for a while, so she's just <laughs> pregnant <laughs> in their flat. Um, and it's sort of about uh, what it's like to be an unmarried pregnant woman, um, in 1950s. Um, yeah, they, they, I'm really enjoying it, and I'm reading it instead of reading the book group book I should be reading, which is Sleepwalking Land by Mia Kuto Which
0: oh, no, I've not heard of that.
1: No, apparently it's not. I don't think it's particularly well-known because it doesn't seem to be um, in the local library, but I have borrowed a <laughs> copy from a friend. Uh, it is written by someone from, I want to say Mozambique. But I could oh, be how interesting. About yeah. Uh, somewhere that had a civil war anyway. Well, I mean, ever has had a civil war, hasn't it? I remember <laughs> having a conversation with an American colleague about a blog post, why we couldn't just call the American Civil War the Civil War, because like every country has their own civil war. Yeah. Others are equally important to those countries. And Mozambique's clearly very important to Miyakuto, Um, which I am quite enjoying, but um, it's so unlike anything I've read before that I need to sort of adjust my mindset to get into it. And uh, in 1950s book by a woman, a British woman, I find easier to (laughs) to get into.
0: Yes. Well, it's difficult when it's not something you would have chosen yourself.
1: Yes, but I think I'm probably going to be glad I've read it. Um, yes, and, that, I mean, and they do say that is one of the reasons for a book group, don't they?
0: They do indeed. Uh,
1: what are you reading at the moment? How are you managing to read with Back to Work and Packing and everything?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm having a great time because I can. I now have my evenings to do whatever I want in. Of course. Because um, now I know I'm masters free, and um, I have just finished Normal People, which is a new book by Sally Rooney, who's in her 20s and writes about people in their 20s. Um, <laughs> it's it's very good. Um, I enjoyed it very much. I, mean, I didn't know where it was going towards the middle, but it, it kind of redeemed itself towards the end. Um, it's not a book for everybody. I think you have to be in your 20s or early 30s to enjoy it. Um, but it's just about two people who are in a relationship on-off relationship with each other while they're at university. Um, and, you know, it's very much middle-class intellectual types.
1: Okay. I've seen so many people, yeah, writing about it.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, it's not effort, it's, it's not doing anything, um, you know, massively groundbreaking in terms of literature but i enjoyed it very much um and now i'm going to get cracking on reading vanity fair because it's on itv at the moment as a new adaptation and i really want to watch it um so uh, and i don't want to watch it before i have read the book because i feel that would be wrong um, especially as I have just finished a Masters in Victorian <laughs> and yet yes. haven't managed to read Vanity Fair. So I'm going to get started on that. And it is, if anyone wants to read along, um, that would be great because I will be blogging about it. Um, and it is totally free on Kindle because obviously it's out of copyright.
1: Yes, I, will, I should join in with you for... So I read maybe four-fifths of it. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, again, my book group did it, in fact, and I didn't finish it in time for book group. At that point, I had read maybe three-fifths of it, and then I went back a year later, read another hundred pages, and I've still got that final hundred or so pages to read, so I, I, when you get towards the end, I'll join in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See if I remember anything that happened in the first. I don't
0: know, I, just, oh, I couldn't read like that, I really couldn't.
1: I don't often leave, I mean, it will be about three years between starting and finishing it, I think, but I don't often do it quite like that. But uh, I can't go back to the beginning. It's so long. <laughs> no. And I really should finish it. This is why but, I don't think we should ever have books that long for book group, because I'm, got, I'm not going to manage to read a, you know 8 million page book in the course of... Well, I mean, I guess I have a month between book groups, but I never start the book until a week before the meeting. <laughs> Whose fault is that? Not mine. I mean, it no. is mine. I am to
0: blame. Well, I mean, I do actually think that reading Fantasy Fair in a month probably might be a push anyway. I mean, I don't know how... I mean, I don't know how many pages it is. I'm a bit scared now.
1: Well, it is very long. My copy has is got, is got a very tiny font, but it's also a very small book. It's one of those, like, old pocket ed- editions. So yeah. I wouldn't like to... They, they
0: lull you into a false sense of security, These books.
1: Exactly. It weighs the same oh, right. size an orange, so it'll be fine.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> well, but the Wordsworth Classics edition is seven hundred and twenty pages. Oh, good Lord. So it's going to be quite an quite an undertaking, <laughs> it would God, seem. Zachary, why?
1: <laughs> well, no, Zachary, at all here. But thank no. you, Faith, for suggesting our first topic a long time ago. But I found it on my spreadsheet where, when I remember, I put in topics that people have suggested. So no, it's not in vain. Um, World War One versus World War Two. As you were pointing out, Rachel, the books in them, or about them, not voting for our favourite wars. No. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, neither uh, were particularly great, I don't think.
1: No, I think that's fair no. to say. I think we can confidently say, well, potentially necessary, discuss. But, yes, <laughs> um, I think we can talk about books written then and books set then. Let's mix yes. it up. And yeah. you told me that you've been doing research and, you know, preparation. Simon, I'm excited you excited about this. Fair? You said, just, that you said that, well, maybe not research, preparation.
0: Yeah, I said I'd just had a shower and had thought about it while in the shower. That's as much preparation as I'd done.
1: And that's so, already more than 90% of our episodes, yeah, Rachel.
0: that's true. <laughs> um, I do most of my preparation for life in the shower, so, you know, it doesn't change much. Um, so, yes, I mean, I was thinking to myself about books that, so are we doing written first? Sure, why not? Okay. Um, about books that I've enjoyed and I was thinking, oh, you know, I feel like I've read four books set during World War One Two uh, and then I was thinking about it and I thought actually no, I've read loads of World War One books, especially as I went through a phase a few years ago of, of being quite obsessed with books about World War One, I. I don't know why, but I did. Um, and um books that I really enjoyed, probably my favourite are Siegfried Sassoon's um semi autobiographical trilogy, which is um memoirs of a fox hunting man um, and then memoirs of a uh, infantry officer, I think. And then, um, Chirsten's Progress, which are about the cover, the period all through the war of when, before the war, of going to the kind of British-based camps where they prepared for war and then being out in France. Um, and Siegfried Sassoon, if people don't know, um, actually became quite uh, an outspoken I wouldn't say pacifist, but he criticised the war very publicly and was, went to a, was kind of tried to, they tried to commit him to an asylum and things. Um, Mm -hmm. and he became really good friends with Robert Graves. And also uh, Wilfred Owen, the poet, because he also wrote poetry. Um, So those books I found really amazing because they were first-hand accounts, really, of what it was like. Um, And before I read that, I'd only ever really read revisionist books like um, *Birdsong* or the *Regeneration* trilogy. Um, And while they're about Sassoon, isn't it? Yes, which is a Mm fictionalized version. And while they're great, I don't think they are um, as. Compelling or convincing, obviously, as 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 the account of somebody who was actually there.
1: Yes, Sassoon is one of these authors that um, obviously I've been aware of for a long time. And after I read uh, Anna Thom- Thompson's um, book about Edith Olivier and Rex Whistler called *A Curious Friendship*, she also writes quite a lot about Sassoon in that because he became friends with, I think, both of them, but particularly Whistler. And he seems so nice in that, both from the way that she describes him and from quotes from, I think, his letters, that I went out and bought quite a few of his memoirs, not that trilogy, but I think the more overt memoirs, um, mm. Siegfried's Journey and The Wield of Youth. I'm just looking at my bookcase, um, which I have not read yet, but <laughs> but I'm keen to. Uh, but I'd always been put off memoirs of a fox hunting man just because I hate hunting so much that I didn't think, I was worried it might start talking about hunting.
0: Well, there is a bit of hunting in there, but not that much, from memory.
1: Um, I uh, th- similarly had a thought that I read a lot more about World War Two, but I think that is true. <laughs> and I was quite, <laughs> and I was struggling to think of many books that I had read about World War One. Um, one of the few that I did come up with is All Quiet on the Western Front mm. by um, Eric Maria right. Remark. I don't know if I'm yeah. pronouncing that correctly. Uh, which I thought was brilliant. Ob- mm. uh, obviously, well, not obviously, but his German, and it was written shortly after the war, uh, and I think was uh, quite an eye opener for British reading public when it was translated. About how you know wh- whether or not you, th- whichever side you thought, fought on, the experience was broadly similar, yeah, um, and equally unpleasant on either side. Uh, yeah, and then other than that, I could I couldn't really think of any of the books set during World War One that I'd read other than Re- *Regeneration* by Pat Barker, as you mentioned, but a fair few that deal with the effects of it. Um, mm. with *Return of the Soldier* by Roka West and *Mrs Dalloway* by Virginia Woolf, both of which I think we've done episodes on, yep. uh, both looking at shell shock. Uh, And whenever, yeah, occasionally people say that shell shock wasn't diagnosed or wasn't properly understood for a long time. And I think that possibly is true with official medical diagnosis. But those books, both written in the early twenties, I think, maybe late Mm -hmm. tens, um, show that there was at least an awareness in some circles of the after effects of, of having seen active combat. Um, but I'm intrigued which other ones you, um, you read and would recommend as well.
0: Well, I mean, interestingly this uh, goes quite neatly into what I was discussing last week because you talking about um shell shock, uh, Peter Lord Peter Grimsey in um Dorothy Sayers' books
1: uh, uh.
0: suffers from shell shock and that is mentioned in the first book quite overtly. He has bad dreams where he wakes up screaming thinking he's still in the trenches and he's valet he was he's uh, he w- was fighting with him that has to, you know, pretend that they're still there in order to calm him down, has to call in Major or whatever and get him back into bed and things. That's quite interesting. Um, so I think it was very recognised by people that that had been what had happened. Um, but I've read um, Robert Graves' memoir, Goodbye to All That, mm. was probably one of the first I read, and it's absolutely brilliant and so visceral and so powerful because he really doesn't hold back on... The descriptions of what it was like—you know—he, you can feel how angry he is in his prose, and he's um, incredibly descriptive of the sights and the smells of of what you know. Often seeing your friends gunned down in front of you and watching people's bodies disintegrate and things like that. Um, and I also really liked um, Edmund Blunden's book, which I can't remember the name of. I'm going to have to Google it. Um, but that's also another contemporary written um, memoir written very quickly after the war um, mm. he was also a poet Undertones of War, that's what it's called that's really really good um, and I found it really interesting to read those and then read the um, Goodbye to All That and Not Goodbye to All That um, or Quiet on the Western Front um, because I think it is very easy to read to, to read about or to experience the war, certainly from our perspective, from a British perspective as, as being the victors, um, and often you don't really think about the German perspective. And reading that and understanding that they went through exactly the same thing and it wasn't a different experience at all was really powerful for me because I'd never been encouraged to look at it from that perspective. Um, I've also done my best to try and read as many books written by women about World War One as well. Mm. Um, and to know more about their roles, and uh, Diary Without Dates by Enid Bagnold is really good.
1: Okay,
0: um, which is it's kind of again, it's semi, it's it's not technically autobiographical, but I think it's it's pretty much might might as well be. Um, and she was an ambulance driver during, and a VAD during World War One, um, and so it's set amongst a group of of girls who are ambulance drivers, and it's the experiences that they have. Um, and Helen Zena Smith um, wrote um, another book about uh, Not So Quiet, um, which is, was republished by Virago but I don't think it's in print now. Um,
1: so and I assume the title is a sort of riposte to All Quiet on the Rest in Front.
0: Yes, I believe so. Um, and uh, apparently it is in stock. I've just checked. So you can buy it um and it's really 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 good again it's about um women ambulance drivers vads and it's really amazing because it's a very honest book it doesn't necessarily paint these women as hit as heroines they're very real um it kind of reads a bit like you know girls in a boarding school dormitory but they're set you know they're living in in a time of war and and how um completely unprepared these very upper class girls for yeah, yeah. the realities of what they were facing you know the kind of things they brought with them that they think that they would need they thought that they would need and it's like oh you know why have I brought an evening dress with me that kind <laughs> of yeah
1: um, and how could they be prepared yeah.
0: well exactly so I think those um, the books that talk about war from the female perspective have actually been the ones that have been most interesting to me because I think we're all quite familiar with experience of trenches and such from watching films and things but so often women's experiences aren't discussed or included at all or they're just you know the kind of the nurses in the background flitting about and holding someone's hand while you know the focus is on the man's experience so understanding more and about that and also the fact that both of those books um, written by um, those women feature the deaths of VODs who are killed in combat as well you know that the hospitals are shelled all the time the ambulances are shelled and it was incredibly dangerous, but that's not really ever discussed.
1: And the first Persephone book, that was, uh, so William and Englishman by Sicily Hamilton. Yes. and that's about World War I as well, isn't it?
0: It is, yeah, but it's um, a slightly different take on things. So it's about um, a very naive couple who are in their early 20s, they get married and they go to, on honeymoon to, um, I think it might be Austria, um, just I was thinking
1: Belgium, but it's somewhere around there. Somewhere (laughs) around there. It's not
0: Germany, it's not France. Um, And they, it's literally the summer of 1914, so just before war breaks out. And war breaks out while they're on holiday. Um, They're in a French-speaking country, so they must be in Belgium. And um, they don't know any French, and they don't read French, so they haven't been able to read the newspapers. And one day um they they hear lots of they wake up early in the morning and they hear lots of horses and people running around and they don't really know what's going on Um, and basically what's happened is that the whole village has run away because they know that the soldiers are coming um and nobody's been able to communicate it to them because they don't speak any french so um that they find themselves stuck in this terrible situation and the soldiers come and then they're kind of trapped and imprisoned and it's really interesting about how their ideals and everything are stripped away by the experience that they have.
1: Yes, because they're very left-wing, aren't they? Yeah, um, The socialists, yes. uh, Yeah, so it's a brutal and visceral book, and it is interesting that Persephone occasionally has this reputation for, you know, cosy-type novels when it started with such a, you know, it is a really brutal book to read, and I think a very good book. I, I'm not sure it's their best book, but, um, but yeah, it's...
0: Well, for pure shock uh, value, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's nothing else quite like it, I don't think.
1: No, definitely. I've not read anything even no. really similar. But um, in fact, yes, when I was writing down World War Two books that I have read, or uh, set during the time, whether whether in active, whether at the front or on the home front, it did seem to largely be with Stephanie books that I was <laughs> writing down, and they do cover many different angles from... Non fiction, Molly Panterdown's brilliant uh, London War Notes, mm-hmm. to um, Doreen by Barbara Noble is a really interesting look at evacuees, uh, to bed with grand music is about what, uh, by Margaret Talasky, which we did yeah, an episode wonderful. on, yeah. Yeah, um, about what happens if, when the cat's away, um, Little Boy Lost also by Margaret Lasky, oh. about the, you know, f- effects of war on a family, I guess, um, it all, all sorts, and I think, um, I mean, I'm sure Persephone have deliberately done that and they look at interesting books showing World War Two and its effects in different ways. But, um, yeah, I think it, I don't know if it's just my reading or, or if it's an accurate impression, but there do seem to be a lot more books about different aspects of the way war affected people for the Second World War than the First World War in in British literature, possibly because it was more immediate for many people here. There was more, obviously much more bombing, there were you know, there was there were air raids and bombing in World War One, I, I believe, but um, it was yes. a lot more of it, and it affected everyone <laughs> in the in the nation. Uh, in perhaps it was easier in the First World War to pretend it wasn't happening if you lived a long way away from from it. I don't know, uh, but also publishing history had changed so much, and cheap printing um, had grown so much, and literacy had, even in in that time had grown an enormous amount. So. Um, yeah, there's certainly a lot more books for that that new middle brown middle-class group of people who might want to read about this sort of thing, I guess, or indeed write about it.
0: Yeah, I think it was also, I mean, psychology was much more well-known, and I think people felt the need to express themselves and to have that kind of cathartic process of writing down what happened to them and share in the trauma of what had happened to them, really. Um, whereas I think in, when you're thinking about the earlier part of the century, that attitude of you know just carry on and don't really talk about it don't need to acknowledge it i think that was much more of a cultural expectation really um not indulging in your grief
1: yeah and i think there was also a, particularly just after the first world war a sense that people just didn't want to think about it I and mean, we you know the roaring mm. 20s all that sort of thing and that seems to be reflected in literature as well We're just thinking let's just not think about that now We've, it's over it's done with whereas second world war there seems to Maybe I don't know if this is accurate or just my impression of it, but it just does seem that there was more um, willingness to talk about it in, in literature and mm. e- during the war and after it. A lot, a lot more um, angles on it, and I guess also treating it with humour as well, which seems bizarre. But things like Provincial Lady in wartime. yeah uh, put out more flags by even War. There's there's all sorts where they were thinking this is obviously terrible, it's really heartbreaking and tragic, but also it's ridiculous in many ways. Mm. Uh, from, you know, evacuees turning up and no one being able to organise it to the bureaucracy that comes out when, in anything like this. Um, perhaps uh, there's not so many comic ones set at the front, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> so the way that it affects everyday really lives, there does seem to be a rich seam of comedy alongside... The tragedy, even when people were writing at the time.
0: Yeah, I think so. There is that real sense of, especially in the early years, and what a farce it all is, and how everyone's doing their best to to muck in and grow potatoes and whatnot. Um, and I think that's a way of coping with it, isn't it? There's those wonderful mm. um, diaries that I can't think of their name now that were published, republished a few years ago. Is um, it Joyce
1: Dennis ones.
0: Yes, I think Henri- so.
1: Henrietta's War.
0: Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed those, for example. But I mean, I I actually really like um, World War II books that talk about the aftermath of the war and what happened afterwards. Like, one of my favourite books of all time is Molly Panterdown's One Fine Day, mm-hmm. uh, that is in a set very shortly after World War Two and about one woman's experience of what it is to be free again. And it's such an emotionally moving book and it really brings it home to you what it was like to spend six years of your life basically suspended. Um,
1: yeah, to talk about another Persephone one that similarly is a an unusual take and just shows you what happens afterwards, On the Other Side by Mithilde Wolf-Monkenberg, I think her name is, okay. um, which is about, I think she is German, but she is very anti-Nazis but living in Germany. And it's that, perspective of yeah what it's like to feel helpless in the face of a dictator and then what what i found particularly interesting when the war is over um and the uh, british are looking after one part of germany the russians are looking after another part possibly the french another part um and how she and her and people like her were treated like the enemy when she's saying, I was on your side, I wanted you to win this war, I wanted you to be here, but it's impossible to communicate that. And it was something I'd never thought about, and it was really fascinating. to. And that's non-fiction. Um, mm. Yeah, really, really good. And I, I mean, think it's that, just so funny. Hey. Yeah, and I think it's, it's always worth looking at these unusual angles um, and these unexpected, like, little things like that, which, you know, when you're doing your broad brush, look at the war, you might not think of immediately.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that the, the legacy of the war is, has cast, I mean, it cast a very long shadow in literature. And you can read books in the 1950s that are still very much referring back to the experiences and, and the traumatic um, nature of, of the war and the impact it had on people's lives in terms of, you know, losing people that they loved, you know, women. I mean, if you think about, for example, Muriel Sparks, um, Miss, the prime of Miss Jean Brady, you know, um, she is as she is because she's lost a fiancé in the war, that's the First World War, but, you know, that idea of world war fiction doesn't necessarily have to be about the war or set during the war. It mm-hmm. can look at the, the long-term impact of what it is to live in the shadow of a war or to have even indirectly experienced war, but having lost people and lived in a world that was a kind of destroyed, really, your innocence destroyed by war, what that does to you as a person.
1: And of course, there were all those books in the 20s that deal with the fact that because so many men had died, there were so many more women than men in, in mm-hmm. England. Uh, and you know, Spinster novel, Spinster novel, which is, you know, one of my favorite genres of all. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. um, whilst I could talk all day about, <laughs> about them and about how accurate those statistics are, but I won't. I was just refer to read my thesis online, start a chapter four. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, yeah. It, Obviously, the war had a huge impact on everyone, but I think it is interesting to see how it affects literature. Uh, is Well, obviously I do. But, but um, I do wonder... Uh, I've not read that many books written about the different wars more recently. Uh, Regeneration, in fact, was the only one I could think of. I'm sure there are others. Uh, um, do you get any sense of it, the wars being treated differently now to the way they were at the time and shortly afterwards?
0: I think that in most of the books I've read um, I've read a fair few um, they tend to be I think they have a bit of a gender I have to say that they do seem to focus on the tragic element of it there's always a romance involved um, and normally there's this trope of you know the woman waiting at home and, and the man away and that kind of thing um, I don't think that they I think a lot of the time that they're kind of romantic they're highly romanticized. And I always get annoyed that I feel like people if you're gonna write about World War One or World War Two and obviously you weren't there, you've got to have a purpose to it. You've got to have an interesting angle you want to explore. I think the regeneration mm-hmm. books are quite a nice example of that by looking at that Siegfried scene story and exploring the idea of of the the real story behind that, and the real story of these relationships, and and I think Pat Barker did a lot of research into that. And when she was writing these books, I mean, they are a good twenty to thirty years old now. She was doing something that was very different, um, mm, people, mm. and these lives hadn't really been researched very much. And I think she brought that back to public consciousness. But there are a lot of romantic books set during World War ii that treat the war as 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 the basis of you know, the deemed romance sort of story, which I think is a shame because it reduces it down to something trivial.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, again, I can't think of that many examples, so perhaps this is just a a guess, but um, obviously we now know there was a Second World War, um, (laughs) and that colours anyone writing about the First World War, because at the time, of course, it was this great war, the war to end all wars, Mm. and... It was tragic, but people ended with a sense of hope that war was over in in the West. I guess, um, which you can't do now. So I find that quite interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's always that sort of knowingness of the futility of it all in uh, modern versions of war, and sometimes at the end, like, um, you know, there'll there'll be a, a kind of a, a reference to the fact. There's always I always find at the end of a lot of books set during the First World War. Someone always has a child, and it's always a boy. And then it's like, oh well, he's going to die. Thank goodness the they morning. will never
1: have to fight. Yes. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. There's always like some cheesy line at the end that makes you think, oh, okay. um So yeah, there is that knowingness that that ruins it, and that's why I think for me, you know, if we're we're bringing this part of the discussion to a close, thinking about whether I prefer books set during World War One or books set during World War Two, I think. If I'm gonna read a book written by somebody at the time, um, I tend think I actually prefer books set during World War One because yes. I think they have a a rawness about them that perhaps books set during World War Two don't because I think that strain of humour that comes through in those books about World War Two are a bit kind of like, you know, battle scarred ones who are like, Well, I've seen it all before and here uh-huh. we go again kind of attitude we won't be defeated we've been through this before whereas those world war one books are full full of such anger and and kind of disbelief that this has been allowed to happen Mm -hmm. um you really do get that sense that this was something that completely shattered a whole generation's view of the world around them because this was something that came out of well didn't come out of nowhere but you know it was outside of anyone's Experience before, whereas people living during World War Two—I I mean, a lot of people would have experienced World War One—and um, it was kind of like, "Oh well, here we go again," sort of thing. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. And speaking of knowing, this I don't
0: know this, if that's true. Obviously, I mean, well, I wonder, yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> not
0: having been there myself,
1: but. <laughs> we're not that old. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of knowing this, I—I I really like books published during Second World, the Second World War, particularly mm-hmm. because people didn't know how it was going to end, and you get this sort of particularly ones that are more serious you get the sense throughout the where they just they don't know what's going to happen because how could they yeah. they might have they might have you know views one way or the other but there is this real sense of um I guess battling through. I don't want to sound too like stiff upper lip, but 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 it is interesting just to have no knowingness to a novel about something so so significant in history. But I think ultimately I would lean towards World War Two, partly in fact part, to do to, the, to do the reverse of what you said because I do like those comic books about it. I do like <laughs> people mind it for the ridiculousness, and then there is, of course, the more serious uh, angles to it. In fact, just remembered another. Uh, a house in the country by Jocelyn Playfair. Some really brilliant descriptions.
0: Um, mm, that's a wonderful as bit. well.
1: So yes, a lot of a lot of options out there. And, uh, but <laughs> yes, I'm ultimately going to plump for World War II.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise!
1: <laughs> yeah, know, well, since literature for me started in 1920, of course, I <laughs> not true. <laughs> uh, thank you, Faith, for suggesting that. I'm sorry it took us so long to get round to actually doing it.
0: Yes, thank you
1: and in the second half as Rachel says an author we both very much like Paul Gallico, Um do you mind if I introduce Love of Seven dollars because I've just reread it
0: no that's you fine
1: um, and then you will do Coronation so Love of Seven Dolls was written in or published in 1954 it's a, a, as Rachel said a novella it's very slim and about a girl she's known as Mouche but, um, how, how do I pronounce that is it like that
0: yeah Mouche yeah, yeah. It, it means fly in okay. French
1: her actual name is Morel, but she's known as Moosh. Uh, she's an orphan and she's had a pretty rough life and she stumbles across this puppet theatre run by Captain Cock, C-O-Q. She? But, um, and she is beguiled by the different puppets who are speaking. So there's Reynard, sort of f- f- typical Reynardian, I guess, uh, Fox rather. Uh, there's a character, there's an older lady, there's a, a fancy younger lady, etc. I can't remember all their names. Um, but she's beguiled by them and their characters and the way they talk to her, and hangs around with them. And she is persuaded to take a job with with the captain running them. Uh, but he is very much the flip side of their loving, lovable and whimsical personalities, and that he's a tyrant and he treats her terribly. But she can't seem to escape the situation, so. She is torn between this this ogre and these obviously not real, but for her very real characters. Um, and it sort of has has fairy tale elements but is but is not quite a fairy tale. As of Seven Dolls, so coronation, Rachel.
0: So Coronation is uh, set during the, uh, the 1953 coronation, um, unsurprisingly, uh-huh. and it's about a family from the north of England who are middle class, but I mean, money is, is tight and um, the dad has managed through a cousin of his to get five tickets for him and his wife and his his two children and his rather grumpy mother-in-law um who's always got a complaint about everything she's hilarious um to go <laughs> and see the coronation and actually have seats in a house that provides view, a view of the of the route along the mall as well as champagne which is what his wife wants more than anything because she's never tasted it before um, and he can't believe his luck because he's got these tickets for a really, really cheap price. Um, and they're very hard to come by and they are so excited about their trip. And, and also in doing this trip, it means that they can't have their, their normal two weeks of a holiday. They've all agreed as a family that they'll, um, they'll sacrifice that two weeks to be able to go and see the coronation. So they go up on the train and you know, you can feel the sense of excitement And you just know that something is definitely not (laughs) gonna happen how it should be and um I don't know should I say more because I don't I don't wanna ruin it. No, I
1: think maybe leave it, (laughs) yeah.
0: So it's basically about their experience of the day, and even though it doesn't quite go to plan, um it's in true Paul Gallico style there is um there is enough to make it worthwhile.
1: Thank you, yes. Um, so it's interesting you say true Paul Galico style because I'm intrigued to know what your history with Gallico is, which what, what you've read and what you started with and all that sort of thing.
0: Um, so I started with The Snow Geese, which I found hmm. in a charity shop and I actually bought more for the illustrations than anything else. And was when um, my eldest nephew was very young and I wanted to be able to read. He was coming to sleep over and I wanted to, to have something to read to him. Um and he actually didn't enjoy it very much at all, because I started reading it, and I was like, oh, actually, this, this vocabulary is really difficult, and he's three, so probably this isn't going to work. Um, and, but then I read it to myself, and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is beautiful. I was crying my eyes out. Um, and then I've read, I can't remember what i read of his. Oh, and then I read the Mrs. Harris books, mm. which are about this wonderful um, char lady, a London char lady who goes off on all of these adventures. Um and then, actually, Coronation was, was the next one that I read. Um, I've had Love of Seven Dolls. Um, my sister actually bought it for me um, last Christmas, not knowing I liked Paul Gallico at all. She just went into a second-hand bookshop um, and wanted to buy me an old book, because she knows I like old
1: books. <laughs>
0: and she said the cover was so beautiful, she had to buy it. And she when she gave it to me, she said, oh, I don't know if it's any good, I'm so sorry. And I was like, no, I love this author, this is great. So, um, reading it for this was it was a lovely experience as well so but I find that he, all of his books have this kind of I don't mean he's very hard to pin down actually because all of his books are very different but at the same time in them there's this wonderful he's just got this wonderful humanity in a way of looking at the world that is so whimsical but at the same time so heartfelt and you just feel that he's constantly looking for a way to show the essential goodness of people and the wonder of the world, rather than negativity.
1: Hmm, interesting. So I started, the first one I wrote by him was Love of Seven Dolls, um, I know, maybe eight years ago or so. And um, Like Your Sister, I bought it because it has such a beautiful cover. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if it's the mm-hmm. same cover. But, um, yes, but I think it must yeah, be. Probably, it is lovely. Um, and I then went on to jenny which uh, is about a boy who turns into a cat um, <laughs> and gets taught by jenny how sort of the rules of the cat world i guess which i did did not like it is quite popular but it's i found it far too whimsical and fair. i'm
0: surprised you don't like a book about cats
1: well i'm quite fussy with a book about cats because i really don't like it if if it is too whimsical because cats are such unwimsical characters they're so like because <laughs> you know they don't disguise the fact that they are Murderous, and that they, yeah, they are, are selfish, and that they, and that they are wonderful above all things, but they are not. Mm. Um, they're not fey in any way. <laughs> so I, I'm quite fussy. I need a. So May and the Fair Person is a brilliant example of someone who writes about cats really well. And I don't think I didn't in, in, particularly enjoy Jenny. But then, I, then I went on to the Mrs Harris books. I, um, I've also somewhere in there read Coronation around the time of the Coronation, uh, the, the Jubilee rather. Um, and I have read The Foolish Immortals, which, uh, was about people trying to convince a lady that they, I think it's a lady, that they have managed to, uh, create immortality, which was just quite a strange book. Um, and I've got lots and lots more of his books on my shelves unread, of course. But for, for me, he's just this, as you say, his books are really different. And I think we've picked two that are really different here as well. Mm. that that he either has quite a darkness to them, or, or books that don't seem like darkness could ever enter into them. And, and coronation seems to me uh, just so lovely, and so the family is so lovely. And as you say, not, things don't all go right, but but it doesn't feel like a dark book in any way. It's just a very sunshiny, happy yeah. book, even when things are going wrong and the, the ability to create characters that that level and a really realistic family dynamic where you think oh, I do know this is, like, this is like my family or this is like people I know where they're fraught and squabbling and love each other very clearly um, is a, that's a real talent to create characters like that I think
0: yeah I mean I thought it was just a wonderful book I mean I bought it on a whim actually on holiday this summer um, I went to a National Trust property and it was one of those ones that had a, a second-hand bookshop oh, and God. I was just rummaging around and I saw Paul Gallico on the spine and it was like you know 50p or something I thought great um, I'll give it a go because I, I hadn't really bought any books with me on holiday um, and <laughs> well yes because you know I was planning on spending my evenings drinking wine and talking to my friends. Um That's
1: an absurd idea, but okay. Go. <laughs> so,
0: um, which is exactly what we did, um, and then it was just—I just thought, oh my goodness, this is just the most like I didn't really know what to expect. And I mean, I'm not a royalist, as you know, um, but <laughs> the—I um, just thought this is so ridiculous. I started reading it, and I just thought, oh no, um, I love you all so much, and you've sacrificed so much for this trip, and I know something's going to go wrong, and I don't quite know what it is, but. Um, And then as the story progressed, I just thought, oh, no, how much worse could this get? And then just how he manages to bring it back at the end. I just thought, what a wonderfully charming and sweet and lovely story that is about real people. And he doesn't patronise or stereotype. They just feel so real and so natural. Mm, mm. And I love how he really captures the spirit of the coronation and, and the atmosphere in London. Um, it felt really of its time, which I really enjoyed, because I don't actually read that many books set during the 1950s or written during the 1950s. And um, it was quite nice to see London depicted during that time.
1: It's not don't think I've read any other book about the coronation, or yeah. which even mentions the coronation in more than in passing, because obviously it was such a huge moment in the country. Mm. Um, and and it was you know, one of the first times that many people got television sets, and that, yeah. and that brought the nation together in a whole new and interesting way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I know it, I've I've not come across anything quite like it. And it was very canny of Bloomsbury to reprint the version I've got um, around the Jubilee. Um, but yeah, it it really it, it feels like a realistic depiction of what it was like for the ordinary member of the public at that point. And I, you know, I am a realist, so I loved it for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but speaking of, well, talking about reality, Love Seven Dollars, of course, is the opposite of reality, and that these. Yeah. There's there's no magic in it. It's not it's not suggesting that the dolls actually are real at any point. I should I should clarify. Um, it is just that mouche is captivated by them. And yeah, how did you how did you feel about that that odd sort of whimsy and darkness that go hand in hand through the book?
0: Well, I mean, I loved it, and I thought oh. that the character of Moushe was wonderful. I loved it being set in France. I loved the dolls. And I thought it was really interesting how the dolls were a, 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 a kind of like the, this kind of warring part of, of, um, uh, what's it, is it Mr., were we call Mr. Cock? Is that his name? Um, Captain, please. Captain Cock, oh, <laughs> <holding> <laughs> And they were these parts of his personality that he couldn't express. And I thought, actually, this is a really interesting psychological novel about um, how this person who has been just like Moosh has been so damaged. He doesn't know how to express himself. And his only way of communicating with Moosh is to be violent and horrible to her because in a way he doesn't want anyone else. He he can't. I feel like, you know, from the beginning, he loves her and. In some ways, it's like he he wants to punish her in some way for coming near him and making him feel vulnerable. And but his kindness to her through the dolls is, is really heartbreaking because it's everything he wants to say to her but can't.
1: And when we say horrible, I mean he he is yeah. a rapist. He is he's desperate to sully her innocence. He is what the, the mm. narrator says. It really is. It, well, it's, in some ways, it, it's I mean, it should be bleak. Obviously, it's a terrible thing he's doing. But for me, because it has that aura of fairy tale to it it's like say the witch dying in the wizard of oz you're not you're not thinking oh gosh someone's died you're thinking this is part of this you know the apparatus of the story so it doesn't have the same at least to me it didn't have the same um shock or the same effect that it would do if it were a realist novel or if it you know if, if it were more like coronation if it were a, every character and it was just normal and, and every day it doesn't have that sort of um i guess misreality to it for me i don't know if you felt the same
0: well i mean i have to say i felt quite conflicted about it and i think it's quite a difficult uh, book from that perspective because i mean i I don't want to reveal the ending but there is an element of it that makes you feel a bit like well are we are Mm. we just are we justifying abuse are we saying this is okay Mm.
1: I definitely uh, had a problem with the ending, and I and I yeah. had not. Rem- I, as I say we won't go too much in depth. But I, I had not remembered it, and I was quite shocked mm. by it. Yeah,
0: and I mean that that part of it for me was problematic. However, at the same time, I felt that he had set up enough of the psychological background for both of the characters mm-hmm. to to make it feasible and understandable. Um, mm. And I, I think you can tell that he's changed. Um, but I'm, I mean, I don't know. It's difficult. I think, I think if somebody read it who had experienced abuse themselves, I think they would find it very uncomfortable.
1: Yes, I, I agree. Um, and I think you have, you have to take the abuse as part in in the overall structure and tone of it, mm. um, perhaps. Um, do you feel with either of these novels that they, because as you say, they're both very short, do you feel either of them would benefit from being longer or they the perfect length for you?
0: No, do you know what? I think they are wonderful because they are so short, because they mm-hmm. are have the emotional t- intensity like a poem. You know, you just are absorbed in the beauty of the words and the world, and they don't need any, like, they're short stories for a reason because they're snapshots. Uh, of these people's lives and their emotions and that intensity really comes out in in a few pages I think if they were spun out for longer you'd lose that real um, Moment of emotional connection that you get with these characters And I love the fact that they were short because sometimes when a book is long uh, I kind of feel like I can't spend time enjoying the language because I've just got to get through yeah. whereas when it's short you feel that you can enjoy the luxury of of taking your time over every page and taking in every word, um, and that makes the experience much richer. And and Paul Gallico is such a wonderful writer as well, such a good stylist. Uh, But you want to be able to enjoy his language and his sentence structure, his choice of vocabulary, the way that he describes things. I mean, you know, he's. I just think that he's such a unique voice.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, generally, I'm unlikely to want books to be longer, but I think particularly with these, it does really work. And most books like Love of Seven Dollars, which have that psychological element and characters are changing uh, quite significantly, you do, I would think without, you know, in, in general, that that book should be, that sort of book should be quite long or at least longer than this because you need room for the characters to change convincingly. But somehow, this one still works as a snapshot, even though it's not a snapshot. It does include quite a lot of character evolution. Um, and in fact, I think what, the unifying thing for Gallico, whether he's writing about fantasy or not, or re- realism or heightened reality, is he's so good at convincing the reader about the world he's created. Whichever mm. book I've read by him, I never question anything. I'm more just like, yes, this this is it. This is works. <laughs> um, and you've you've got me in that world in a couple of pages.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just think he's, I mean, he's just, I I just think his masterpiece, you know, I'm just, whenever I read something of his, I'm just like, number one, where the hell did you get that idea from?
1: (laughs) Um,
0: Number two, you know, how do you manage to make me care so much about people who, like, are so strange and whimsical and different from me and, you know, not necessarily nice people, but I still, like I cared even about Captain Clock, I, my heart broke for him. I thought, I can't believe I'm feeling this way, but, you know.
1: Well, I cared for the dolls, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, you care for everybody. Yeah. Um, so, yeah.
1: And the next one I'm planning to read by him, which, I, well, I say that I've been planning for a long time, is one I've got called Too Many Ghosts, just because I think it's such a good title. It's a beautiful book as well, the, I mean, all of the book cover. designs
0: as well are beautiful. I mean, I've looked, I've seen the design for the Snowflake, which is also looks mm-hmm. beautiful.
1: so Yeah, it's he, he the only ones where they're not as well. He, he did keep writing into the 80s, um, and those tend not to be so lovely. <laughs> and indeed, of course, The Poseidon Adventure is probably his most famous one, which I have no interest in reading at all. did know
0: he wrote The Poseidon Adventure.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to oh. quickly Google that, because I'm pretty sure he did, but... <laughs> I don't want to be wrong. I
0: didn't
1: know that. Um, I think he did this whole, this whole strand of more like adventure-type novels that that's not my sort of book, I don't think it's your sort of book, but um, it's obviously some people's sort of book. He was amazingly prolific as well, written all sorts of books. Um, I am very slowly Googling this, but I don't want the film. <laughs> You're going to give me the film, aren't you? Based on Paul Gallico's book, yes, he did write *The Adventure. Wow! So, yes, nothing if not eclectic, Mister Gallico. Well,
0: you know, absolutely, and um, what a, an amazingly versatile pen.
1: Yeah, and and also quite easy to find in hair shops and things in England, at least. Absolutely.
0: And nice. I, um, I mean, I would recommend anyone just giving him a go.
1: Yes, maybe read the blur to see if it's going to be one of his lighthearted or one of his darker ones, but depending yeah. <laughs> what mood you're in, but certainly um, he's good at both those things, too. So. Uh, and while decision-making time, between these two, which we you pick?
0: Oh, I think I'd have to go for Coronation, because it didn't, you know, it didn't put me in a difficult place, morally.
1: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, now I feel terrible, but because I think it is, of the eight or nine books, if as I read, I think it is the best one. I'm going to go with Love of Seven Dolls. Um, There are moral questionable things to it, but um, I think it's just such a brilliant, sort of a tour de force, so so cleverly done and so unusual, and I loved it. Yeah. Um, Although whenever I describe it to people, they always wonder quite why. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Great. Well, thank you for suggesting Gallico, Rachel. It was nice to talk about him.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So all the books and authors we've mentioned are at stuckinabook.com and you can find Rachel at bookssnob.wordpress.com. I always forget to do that bit, but you can. <laughs> 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 Thanks for listening. You can visit my blog at stuckinabook.com. You can visit Rachel at com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash T or books. We're very grateful to those who do. Uh, Many thanks to you, particularly thank you to Maria, Gracie, Randy and Elizabeth. And we'll speak to you soon. Bye.